Close reading of Shakespeare is not a new concept. But this kind of close reading? This is much more challenging. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. As awareness grows about just how fraught certain words can be, many are struggling, in classrooms or on Zoom calls, with how their word choices reflect or ignore the realities of a multicultural society. Because language is a huge part of that struggle, it's a thorny maze for some and a minefield for others. This is a maze that Shakespeare helped create and that teachers are learning to navigate. Many professors today are careful to make sure students stop and think more deeply about the words in his plays and poems. Words like alabaster or fair, phrases like sooty bosom or a feasting presence full of light. What these words reveal about our understanding of humanity how it is shared or limited to certain groups or associated with certain traits, that's a thread that scholars are following through the maze. This podcast is a conversation about the words in Shakespeare and about their impacts. We're led through this thicket of words by two professors who've contributed to the new Cambridge Companion to Shakespeare and Race. Dr. Carol Mejia LaPearl of Wright State University wrote the chapter on race in Shakespeare's tragedies. Dr. Patricia Akime of Rutgers University wrote the chapter about race in Shakespeare's comedies. We call this podcast a whole theater of others. Doctors Patricia Akime and Carol Mejia LaPearl are interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Carol, let's start with you. Uh, It is pretty clear that Shakespeare often explores contemporary biases and understandings, either to interrogate them or to sometimes pander to his audience. So let's start with a concrete example that you mentioned, and it happens when uh, Brabantio talks about Othello's sooty bosom as something to fear, not to delight. So what is Shakespeare up to there? Why the pointed adjective sooty? I think it's pointing to a couple of things. On the one hand, it's referring to a th- sort of the history of theater and the use of blackface or other forms of converting a white actor into a, you know, a, a performance of the devil um, in medieval plays. So it is in some ways a kind of a metadramatic moment. So partly it is a instruction manual, like you are supposed to fear somebody who looks like this, but it's also richly evoking a theatrical performance of all the ways that blackness has been equated with a performance of evil. Okay, so we dove in really deep, really quickly here, and you mentioned (laughs) that this goes back to medieval times, to the church, right? That blackface characters in morality plays in the church signified evil. Just remind us, what were those plays like and who were the blackface characters? Were they demons? They were, were they literally the devil? They would have been the devil and they would have been figures of temptation. So um, the, the external can reflect some kind of internal depravity. And that just, in this culture, is characterized as black. And that translated, that evolution went straight to 
theater in Shakespeare's time, and it would be immediately understood by the audience. So, Patricia, I want to turn to you. So this idea of blackness as a symbol of evil, was it used in the same way in comedy? You can absolutely find it in comedy. And I think that's maybe one of the most interesting things about pairing the discussion of Shakespeare and race in the comedies and in the tragedies is that there are a lot of commonalities there, that some of these stereotypical stigmatizations of blackness are ubiquitous. What's really interesting about seeing it on the stage, though, is that we see the kind of demonized figure from the mind take full 3D form on the stage in the bodies disguised in these really evocative ways that audiences would have responded to at the time and which we still respond to now. Yeah, and you say this really provocative thing that Shakespeare is employing racist humor a lot and that in part it acts to create social cohesion among the in-group. So let me see if I understand that. Do you, do you mean by that that it reinforces an, an us-and-them dynamic and the idea that here, we in the audience, we can all laugh at these people because we here in the room are the in-group or the top of the heap? Absolutely. And that's, you know, it's not just Shakespeare. That's how racist humor functions and has functioned sort of throughout time um, is to reaffirm our ideas of who is in an in-group and who is in an out-group. And it also, it's also derogatory and it's harmful to a real group of people out there. But at the moment that the racist joke is told and appreciated and laughed at, its primary function is to make us feel good about ourselves being part of that in-group. So absolutely, yes. I would love to add to that, Patricia, because your essay made me rethink what it means for me to sit in a theater and laugh. And, you know, if you've, and, and that division that you're pointing at, that for some people it is an absolute neutral and it feels just like well, we're just having fun, we're just in on the joke, um, that that's a particular kind of privilege. Because if yep, some of that absolutely. language mm-hmm. is actually evoking the Black Ethiop, um, that's not funny if you are identifying yeah. with what is being attributed as the, the subject of mockery. So it's actually kind of a lovely moment of like reading your essay like that really helps me think about what it was like to be to think about something as funny and to think about something as not funny at all while everybody around me is laughing yeah and it gets really fraught obviously um but you also patricia say you you represent both sides of the coin and and it's really intriguing because you say it not only you know it's useful to to define shakespeare's comedy in terms of the ability to make audiences laugh, but also its ability to enable audiences, and this is a quote, to think the unthinkable by speaking what might otherwise be unspeakable. But it has this, I don't mean to whitewash it, it's language is so fraught, I've just stepped right into it. But I don't mean to whitewash this, but this is the kind of the other side of the, the coin. Well, when I think about racist humor, I think about how it's permissive, that it gives us the opportunity to, I might say that it gives us the opportunity to tell the truth, that is to say something that we might not say ourselves in mixed company, but in the theater that we laugh together. 
And when we do that, we make things that aren't necessarily true on their face, right? Race isn't real. Um, but in the theater, we give ourselves permission to make it true by laughing at the jokes together. So we make the, we create the construct and we make it real. That's right. You know, how are stereotypes created and how are they maintained? One of the ways is through communal laughter. Yeah. Now, Carol, you write about, getting back to specific examples, an example of in Titus Andronicus, that it taught the audience that to be black is to be a harbinger of social disaster, and that Mm. the play teaches its audience to read the black body as a catalyst to social disruption. So what do you mean by that, the, the the black body as a catalyst to social disruption? Part of where my analysis of that comes from is the importance of the Roman plays for Shakespeare's stage. The way that the Roman tragedies were trying to convey a kind of formula for how to think about empire right at the moment that those aspirations um, are coming out for England. The moment that I'm talking about there, for instance, in Titus Andronicus, speaks to the way that Roman culture is now opened up and it has welcomed the Goths. And with that kind of openness, there is the threat, in this case, embodied by Aaron, the Moor. I'd love to point to that moment at a really quirky scene in the play where Titus plays out the craziness of a revenger by smacking at a fly. Um, should no, actually, his brother kills the fly, and he said, "Well, because it's a coal black moor." And so, what it sort of indicates is that the specter of blackness is something you're supposed to that's supposed to alert you to something you should fear. Because he says the fly it. is black. That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Just by virtue of that, that the fly is black, then now it becomes the actual recipient of that destruction. Because that's always sort of how this play or how the projection of black evil works, right? On the one hand, it's supposed to embody social annihilation and destruction. And that is Aaron is hyperbolic evil almost. But on the other hand, what's actually happening is it normalizes the treatment of that black body. It kind of justifies the treatment of that black body as an object of punishment. So that when I say it's a catalyst for social destruction, it's not so much that it is, but rather that to present it as a catalyst of social destruction is to justify its mm-hmm. destruction. So that's kind of I, you know, how I feel it's working, especially in a play like that. And if I could just sort of jump in there, because I think this is one of the things that Carol's essay does incredibly well. It shows us how the tragedies in casting Black bodies in this role teach audiences how to respond to Black bodies, which would obviously have a real-world effect. But Carol doesn't really stop there. She says the tragedies also problematize that strategy because the tragedies give us all kinds of dilemmas in this simple dichotomy of dark and light being sort of good and evil. For example, it gives us the mixed-race baby in Titus Andronicus. It gives us um, villains who present as white. It gives us Moors who are actually valiant. Um, It gives us Black women who are desirable. And then asks us, so what do we do with these anomalies? And that those complications are also really a really important part of what tragedy does for early modern audiences in terms of understanding race. So what do the comedies do then? (laughs) 
<laughs> Patricia. <laughs> I mean, well, and, and another thing that I find really provocative in your essay is that you say that, that you look to the comedies to explore what race is rather than making an assumption about what it what it is or what it was. Yeah, and there are obviously lots of different approaches to thinking and talking about race in, in early modern texts and in Shakespeare. And one of the things I do is, in addition to looking at, for example, the stereotypical black body, I'm also looking for what I think of as the building blocks of racism. Uh, how do we create groups and how do we include and exclude people from those groups? How do we rank those groups from like super great to not so great? Um, and then how do we decide what kinds of privileges will be ascribed to different groups? So in the comedies, we see characters who are really struggling against systems that are oppressive for reasons they can't quite explain. Like who? Um, for example, Malvolio is one of my favorite characters from the comedies. He is not a bad guy, prudish, difficult, but all he really wants, he wants to marry up. And he would like everyone to be respectful of him. And within the context of Twelfth Night, where Malvolio appears, he is just short. He, the way he's treated makes him sort of just short of a villain. The other characters, understanding that these are the things Malvolio wants for himself, imagine beating him violently, hanging him, castrating him, the lengths to which they fantasize about injuring him as a punishment for those um, aspirations is kind of horrifying. They physically the imprison him. Funny. Yeah. They physically imprison him. Yes, mm. there's sort of no end to the punishments. And I find that extremely interesting because what Malvolio lets us explore is um, the question that he asks at the end of the play when he says to Olivia, tell me why. So I think the comedies give us the opportunity to see characters in situations they wouldn't normally be in um, because the comedies give us the wackiest of scenarios that involve shipwrecks and coups and um, people in disguise and all kinds of stuff like that. But because they're in those positions, it gives them the opportunity to talk about why things are the way they are and why they're not so fair for everyone. Uh, so now one of the things we're talking about here is dehumanizing people. And you're right that one commonality between characters like Malvolio and others in the comedies is that they're recognizable by their lack of humanity. Some don't even have names, you're right. So who are you talking about there? Which ones don't have names? Well, one common practice is to compare oneself negatively to a Jew, to a Moor, to a black Amor. And it gives us a window into how people in the early modern period distinguished themselves from other groups with which they actually had a relationship. The early modern world, early modern London, the early modern world, it's a cosmopolitan place. It's not actually possible to kind of have a full siloed community of just us. So the fact that these phrases are common despite that reality is to me fascinating. And we're talking a lot about the exploring otherness and the outsiders. And and you, you've mentioned a couple of times this was a period, Shakespeare's period was a period of great transition in London, population explosion, incredible diversity, and a lot of social anxiety about that, as there always is in times of transition. And Carol, you give the example of Aaron the Moor in Titus Andronicus as one of the racialized figures who infiltrate the common wheel from inside. 
So what's the message here? Is it just, you know, it's a time of transition. There are a ton of new people uh, all over the place. Stick with your own and you'll be okay? Or is it something much more complex? Well, I think partly at face value, there is that, um, and people can come at it that way, which is to sort of see it as a warning of what it means to open up your borders and let others in, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you think about how this even functions, this this is, all, you know, and, and the fact that Aaron, as quote-unquote dangerous as he is to the commonweal, is in fact the only parent who cares for his child at all, and is also, you know, I make this point, the only one who doesn't eat human remains at the mm -hmm. end, right? Mm -hmm. And in fact, you know, I'm always very curious about the, the issue of he is punished for what he might do. So, um, yes, this is, you know, partly a warning about letting insiders in, but there's also moments, if we look closely, of how complicated that is. Anthony and Cleopatra is another great example where we know that, um, you know, Cleopatra as this African beauty has been seen as a corrupting factor in Antony's military demise. But at the same time, some of the language that comes out of that union is the most poetic in, in, you know, in Shakespeare's opus. And in fact, she conveys uh, the complications of that attraction of interracial desire and the complications of, you know, in this case, also the fear of miscegenation. However, you know, she's an incredibly alluring character with some of the most compelling lines and some of the most complex and dynamic expressions of love. So that, I think, is part of complicating this straightforward warning against outsiders. I was just, well, there's something really important about the point that Carol makes, not only about this problem that she's just described, in which audiences are come to understand, for example, Black bodies as desirable, as uh, Black fathers as loving. She also talks about about white bodies as well. Um, and in our discussion of race today, we've been talking a lot about, um, you know, dark skin and bodies that are othered in some ways, but it's also about a project of producing whiteness. And Carol talks about the production of whiteness and of the white female body in the tragedies as an idealized body. Um, and I, I think that's really important. And I'll stop talking because I'd rather hear Carol talk about it, but I just, I wanted to make sure and get that in there. I mean, there's multiple examples. I think the visually speaking, there's that famous Ophelia portrait that plays out what is in fact a verbal description, but her fairness is elevated. That's also Romeo's reaction to Juliet when he enters the tomb, that she's this glorious bright light within that space. Desdemona is, of course, the... Um, alabaster, mm -hmm. right, um, mm -hmm. monument. And within those tableaus, you know, the woman is passive, uh, but her passivity is loaded with all kinds of pathos. I mean, we keep coming back mm -hmm. to maybe some of the differences and similarities between tragedies and comedies. But one of the ways that tragedies, I think, functions in a society is that it conveys a place to um, explore extreme emotions. And the height of that pathos, the height of that empathy is a dead white woman. Mm -hmm. This is part of that larger discussion we're having about really performance, drama, art, and culture. So it's also teaching you who to fear, but it's also teaching you who to mourn. And that's mm -hmm. very specifically in this case, and over and over in the tragedies, um, the white woman. Carol, do you think that just as those Black fathers, for example, in the plays um, represent something important for early modern English audiences, I'm wondering if the fact that that idealized 
white body, which symbolizes like virtue, um, goodness, the fact that it's sort of, I don't know, well, for lack of a better word, dead. Dead. <laughs> I was going to say dead. <laughs> D- dead. So convenient to have a woman dead. <laughs> this was leading to my next question because yeah, being dead, absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. literally you're dehumanized. You're you're devoid of life. And we're talking about dehumanization uh, and how Shakespeare uses it. And I feel like I might be asking the same question over and over again, but does, uh, Patricia, does Shakespeare dehumanize the same way in the tragedies as he does in the comedies? I think of of the tragedies is more straightforward that all I'm thinking about is Macbeth or, you know, Hamlet. My focus is so laser-like on the main character and the fall. And the comedies are such a different mode of thinking about this, such more questioning, more meandering. I mean, is it it done by a a different or the same process? I guess that's sort of, I mean, maybe that's the point is... um, the comedies ask a tougher question, which is sort of, is there room for more than one human in this play, in, you know, in my life, in, in this world, in world, right, exactly. And that surprisingly is, is a tough question for us to answer. Hmm. Well, then does the dehumanization in the comedies serve a different purpose than in the tragedies? Well, I mean, my sense is that it's ser- the purpose it serves, thinking about comedy being communal, is that it allows us to talk about together something that's very uncomfortable for us to talk about, which is that we all experience dehumanization to some extent. We live in a world that is defined by um, different types of groupings that are beneficial for some and detrimental for others, whether it's class or race or the combination of those two or religion or something else. So we run into barriers not of our own making that no matter how no how no matter how hard we try that there are questions of access so there are questions of prejudice that we run into and so when we talk about dehumanization in the comedies what we're talking about is um, the dilemma that almost all of the characters run into and the one that we all as audience members find most familiar, which is that um, you can't always get what you want. And sometimes that's your own fault and sometimes it's the fault of forces much larger than yourself. There's something inherently funny about that because it's really painful and it's really familiar. I would love to jump in and just say and how much I appreciate your work on this, Patricia. Your book, Race and Conduct um, in Early Modern Culture, is so formative about thinking about exactly those moments, right? And she has a, Patricia has this great reading of Caliban and Pinches, which has always just been read as like a kind of torture by the magician Prospero that he deserves. But you make this wonderful, really complicated reading of Pinches and deprivation and of how much like that kind of pain is embroiled in what is denied him, not some kind of just punishment towards his monstrosity, but rather the way that the structures around him have created the conditions of that pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that, you know, that's an extreme example, but you run through the gamut of so many ways that, uh, you know, in the way that you read the rude mechanicals, just so many ways that these kinds of social barriers are often blamed on the person who's not getting it, but be- mm. in order to obscure the conditions mm-hmm. in which they're not getting it, right? So, yeah, I think it's just such a brilliant way to think about Shakespeare and make Shakespeare relevant today because these actually really do resonate, just the way that you formulated that notion of categorizing people and what are they 
allowed to have as part mm-hmm. of marking what their humanity means. Though I was going to say, it's really hard to hear Caliban talk about how he once had access to education and then it was take, that access was taken away from him. Um, and then in the play, when he's described as ignorant, as unlettered, as having rude speech, then you have to ask, well, what would have happened if he'd been able to complete his education, the one that was removed from him? And there are these kind of the, the, like poignant backstories that are, that are folded into the plays. Well, this really supersedes the question I wanted to ask you really in summary, but I'm going to ask it anyway, which is that we know that the 17th century harbored racist attitudes, the attitudes that we see in these plays, but then there there are layers. So what should we get out of the knowledge that these attitudes are there? So I'd start by saying that despite the fact that, as you say, you know, we know that the 17th century is, as I often say to my students, like perhaps the most racist um, time period, I don't know that it's really a given. So as I was writing this essay, one of the things I found um, surprisingly difficult was that I realized that the most important uh, intervention to make first was to simply say that Shakespeare's comedies are filled with racist humor. And that that's not something that's frequently acknowledged. So I think I'd, I'd start by sort of changing the premise of the question that maybe that acknowledgement is actually an important first step. I agree. Um, for instance, part of some of the questions around this and, and just acknowledging that it is there and that, in fact, there's a really important role that it can play. You know, I'm thinking about my students, for instance, I absolutely find that, uh, you know, the question, for instance, about students saying, oh, okay, you know, when you talk about dark and fair, um, isn't that just being pretty or, or whatever? And, you know, I always like to take a moment and ponder on that, you know, when, when the Duke says far more fair than black, and we spend a lot of time unpacking the layers of that. Because when he says far more fair than black, those five words have nothing to do with beauty, right? It's coding a whole other set of layers about moral judgment and social belonging. So in that statement, black is unwanted, diminished, or evil. And then because you're far more fair than black, you're good. Um, The fairness, therefore, stands in for belonging and value and all those things. So just in those five words, you can see how students, by acknowledging that there is, you know, there are layers to this language, and there are ways in which it's ostensible application can just feel so naturalized as if like, oh, that's actually a compliment, right? So in fact, when you <laughs> when you see the layers that's at work, they are actually able in some ways to read really interestingly and really critically. I mean, I think the the gift of that is they take something that they thought they knew what it meant, and it's very provocative and very freeing for them to be able to say, oh, look at the way a context of this history gives me an even richer understanding of the complicated relationships between these characters and the complicated attitudes about social belonging in this play. So it's just, you know, in some ways, it's just like a really rich moment to be able to bring in these questions. And I think, you know, once you've done the sort of work that that Carol is describing, once you give those analytical tools to students, 
it's much easier to bring those to work in your life, the current day, things that are happening all around us, where often the language we use when we talk about race is um, it's highly coded, but it's treated as if it were straightforward. So having the ability to break apart and understand the many layers that go into a word as simple as as fair um, becomes an essential skill. So Patricia, when you teach, do your students pick up on this fact that really maybe the early modern period wasn't very different from the world we live in or as different as they thought it was? That's always my hope. And I, and some students, I think, do appreciate that and come to understand that um, and also come to understand that race isn't sort of one thing or one easily recognizable thing. And An exercise that I do with my students is um, I say, you know, now we've come to the end of the semester. You have um, learned all about race in the early modern period. If you could define one word, let's make a glossary of terms, and you define one word, and fair is actually one of the words that students often choose to define, and and explain to someone who has never read Shakespeare or hasn't read many early modern texts, explain to them how important this term is and all of the things that it means, so that when they encounter it in an early modern text or elsewhere, they too will have this wealth of knowledge about how that term works. Um, And I find that that's a really satisfying activity for students to do, to utilize the expertise that they've gained by imagining sharing it with someone else. Wow, that's fascinating. And Carol, what's your thought on this? You know, what's interesting to me is I feel like they have to undo a lot of the training that Mm -hmm. it is not similar, when in fact, intuitively, they already see its similarities before they even come to me. Um, you know, so it's actually an interesting process of allowing them to trust themselves when they come to something and be like, that feels kind of wrong. Like that feels like not funny, right? To go back to <laughs> to Patricia's wonderful moment, like what's the work of racist jokes, right? When they, you know, I don't introduce that to them. They, I, I should just, you know, maybe go ahead and share this anecdote because it's so close to my head, just This week, a friend of mine asked um, me to send some materials for her granddaughter who doesn't believe in her experience so far of high school that anyone does race and Shakespeare. Like what? And so- We don't exist. Yeah, like apparently, we don't We're like the tooth fairy. Yeah, so so I was like, okay, let me send you this material. And actually what's really interesting about it is she's not because she necessarily wants to just talk about Shakespeare and race. It's that she was finding that if she wanted to talk about race, there was actually something really productive about talking about it in the context of something 400 years prior prior and then bringing that to bear. But I just also wanted to point out just because, you know, thinking about your audience here and that, you know, maybe they're not all students, you know, the person who asked for this is, you know, it's a good friend of mine. She's highly educated, social justice, feminist uh, professor, retired professor, and she has never, ever encountered in all of her education this notion of Shakespeare and race. And Mm -hmm. so what's interesting about the discussion we started to have how it works is it just allowed her to read things anew. So it wasn't just a matter of being critical about the language or making social commentary. It was quite literally re-watching plays differently and in fact looking at theatrical practices differently from her point of view. And I mean, you know, what's more fun than reading and watching something that you know you love, but doing it as if it's for the first time because you're being introduced to a new frame, a new lens. So, Mm -hmm. you know, both of those things are at play. 
Well, there is so much more to talk about, but uh, this was fantastic. Thank you so much, both of you, for taking the time and for, for talking so freely about it. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Dr. Patricia Akime is an associate professor of English at Rutgers University in Newark, New Jersey. Dr. Carol Mejia LaPearl is a professor and honors advisor for the Department of English at Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio. In the new Cambridge Companion to Shakespeare and Race, Dr. Mejia LaPearl wrote the chapter on race in the tragedies. Dr. Akime wrote the chapter on race in the comedies. They were interviewed by Barbara Bogave. The Cambridge Companion to Shakespeare and Race was published by Cambridge University Press and became available in the U.S. in February 2021. Our podcast, A Whole Theater of Others, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Paul Luke at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find out more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.